Welcome to Canvas Church. You are listening to our weekly celebration service message. Thank you for tuning in. We're glad to be here. Ben and Katie, we've known for since 97, and uh, they followed us from Seattle to San Diego. (laughs) I'm just kidding. And uh, then they went to Vegas, and we went to Baton Rouge, and then we all came back to Southern California, and we're one big happy family. And uh, we love Canvas Church. Uh, what a great blessing it is just to be here. Even to give up your pulpit uh, the first Sunday of the year is a big deal because uh, you really want to set in the kind of the vision for the year. And, uh, and to entrust that to somebody like me is dangerous. And I, <laughs> and I take it as a big honor to do that. So I will make sure that I do not mess this up. All right. And uh, so there, there you have it. That's a little bit about us. I want to get into the word because uh, I want to get you out for the Chargers game so you can see what it's like. See what the, the massacre is going on for the Chargers are massacring the other team. If you have a Bible, and hopefully you do, this is the place to have a Bible, uh, turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 4. And we're going to talk about simple church. This is one of, the, one of my favorite things to talk about. I am a simple man, and uh, that can be misconstrued. You could think that I'm really dumb. Uh, or you could think that I'm very streamlined and modern. That's the latter, just so you know. Acts chapter 4, and I'm going to read you a couple of different passages, uh, three or four verses a couple different times here out of Acts, so just be ready to turn the page or two. Acts chapter 4 and verse 1 says this, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. That's pretty sweet. Now look, it over, uh, look over at verse 27 of chapter 4. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness, say boldness, they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, say prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with what? Boldness. Turn over to 5, chapter 5 and verse 29. Verse 29 says this, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And the last passage here, chapter 5, verse 39 through 42 But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with them, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they, the apostles, departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you it's living and sharper and powerful than any two-edged sword. I pray today that every heart loaded would be good soil, and it would hear the word, would receive the word, and begin to do the word and produce fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. 
Simple church, I mean, I think the best thing to do is just start with what, is, what does it mean to be simple? Uh, simple is simply, if I can say that again, simplicity, simplicity, simple is the unburdening of yourself and focusing on what's most important. And just think about that for a second, because we live in a non-simple time. It seems like everything's getting simpler. Now I can do everything with my phone, pretty much. Uh, you know, I don't need to know where anything is. I can just go to my phone and speak to it. Uh, my grandpa, or not my grandpa, but Paige's dad was like, oh yeah, you just Google it. And Catalina says, no, I just asked Siri. Catalina is my daughter, and she, you know, you can just see there's already like, he's thinking Google, and she's thinking, oh, I just tell my phone, my, you know, my iPad what to do. And uh, that's a whole separate issue of her having an iPad, and all three of them do. I've got three kids, Catalina, Caleb, and Jonah. And uh, it should be simpler, right? But it seems like as things get simpler, the more things we're taking upon ourselves, that we're kind of streamlining some things, and we're just piling more things onto the plate, which, of course, the more things you pile onto the plate, the more unfocused you become. The focus of simplicity is the unburdening, the streamlining of your life to find out what is most important. What is the thing that is going to drive you to success or to the will of God, however you want it? What is the place you're trying to get to? You got to be simple. You got to be focused to do that. I mean, one of the things that we're always talking about, my wife and I, with the church is how can we get this down to simple? How can we bring this to the lowest common denominator? Do we need to have this? And do we need to have that? And is, is what, what are all these things? And do, we even, do I even need to say this? And, and all these aspects. I mean, do we need to have the screen and the projector and the lights and the recording and the video? And yes and no and yes and no. It all becomes personal. Ultimately, do I just want to get up on stage and just preach the gospel? And throughout the week, I just want to meet with people and disciple, but that may not be enough to catch a culture that is so non-streamlined and is so bombarded constantly that that may not be able to reach them all the time. Some people it may, but we've got to keep widening and pushing open that gate to say, come on in, let's, let me show you who Jesus is, let me show you what he's all about, and get people into the renewing of the mind process. So simplicity is the unburdening of yourself, of your life, to focus on what's most important. And I'll just give you the answer to what's most important. It's Jesus. Jesus is most important. And you being like Jesus is most important. And that really should be the the ultimate definition of simplicity, being like Jesus. That's all you have to do. Even as, you know, as Ben was joking about all the things that we say, if I give you three points today and he gives you three points tomorrow and then uh, Katie gives three points in two weeks and, and then we do this for the rest of the month, by the end of the year, you've got the law to fulfill, right? And you got more than that. That's, you know, three times 52. You've got 156 different things you've got. If you just got to do three things this week, and then next week it's four things next week, and the week after it's five things. By the end of the year, you've got 200 things you've got to do. Like, uh, uh, uh. I've got them great in bullet point format, but i still got the law to, and it's this un, unbearable burden that we've got to take on. Seven keys to have a better marriage. Hey, I just need one. Just give me one, you know what I mean? Okay, love my wife. Ha, genius. Where do you guys come up with this stuff? Oh, it's right here in Ephesians. I'm, I'm going to give you four points just for the record, <laughs> even after I said all that. And on top of that, I really probably could give you 100 points on a simple church, but that kind of defeats the purpose of simple church, right? You know, unburdening ourselves. We've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to, ultimately, you've got to be like Jesus. That's the goal of simple that's the goal of simplicity. If you wake up tomorrow morning and say, what was the point of the message? Just, just say this, be like Jesus. That, that's really it. 
uh, because all the things that we're talking about are the embodiment of Jesus. We are the body of Christ, and all we have to do is look to the head and say, head, tell me what to do, you know, and the brain tells the body what to do, and that's what we've got to be allowing ourselves to just be like Jesus. I wake up tomorrow morning, I don't have to do anything, I have to be like Jesus. So that's, that's kind of the idea of simplicity. Then we look at the word church. What does the word church mean? Immediately, I think most people, when you say church, they think of what we're doing right now or where we're at right now. In fact, in our common vernacular, we always say, oh, where do you go to church? When in reality, it's not where we go to church. It's, are you the church? I like to ask people, oh, what, part, what church are you a part of? And they say, oh, the one that meets in the building. So you're a part of that building? No, we're a part of the, we believers Point to yourself and say, I am the church. You are the church. Because if we remove this building, heat or no heat, the church still goes on. Right? All over the world, people are not meeting in buildings. People are just meeting together. Jesus was extremely realistic. He just said, hey, look, if you can just get one other person with yourself, maybe two other people, I'll be there in the midst of you. And they're like, that's, that's the simplest church you got. Just two or three gathered together in my name. Jesus says, hey, if you touch anything, it'll be healed. If you ask for anything, I'll give it to you. That's, that's the, the simplest church we can ever find. In America, we're like, no, nah, that's not a church. You don't have any projectors. You don't have HD. That's not the church. Come on, where's your, what's your website? Uh, I don't have a website. I just, the Bible? Is that a website? It is, actually. But. So, Church, according to the Bible, according to Jesus, we have this Greek word, ekklesia. Now, I don't normally like to quote Greek words, but this one's really important to the foundations of who we are because this word, ekklesia, means this, the called out ones. That's interesting because that then defines who is the church. The church is the called out ones. The church is the ones who have been called out of the world, who have accepted what Jesus Christ has done and said, I'm no longer going to give myself over to the world and the world system. I'm not going to give myself over to self-centeredness and selfishness. I'm giving myself to Jesus, and I'm called out of a place that I was in darkness, and I'm calling my, I'm, God is calling me into the light, and I am now one of the called out ones. You see it in the Old Testament. God says, look, I'm calling this family out of the rest of the world population. Abraham, all of your descendants, I'm calling you out. Noah, I'm calling you out. And he's setting out apart this family from the rest of the world. This is, as it says in the New Testament, this was the principle. It's the church in the wilderness. They were called out from among the rest of the world. Now we fast forward that all the way into the New Testament. Jesus comes along and says, hey, I'm coming to create a new family. No longer if you were born and a part of Israel and the son of somebody and the son of this guy and the son of that guy who begat this person and begat this one. He says, no, I'm begatting you all if you will accept me. He didn't really say that. I added that begatting part. He says, if you accept me, then you will become my sons and daughters. And you, we are now the family of God. And that is what God has designed and destined for us from the very beginning. We are now family, brothers and sisters. Now, we don't go around necessarily, except from the South, we go around saying, hey, what's up, brother, you know, uh, because of brothers and sisters. And, uh, but it's not bad. You know what I mean? I don't call Ben my dad. You know, hey, dad. Because <laughs> he's not my dad. But the idea, the concept 
of brotherly and sisterly relationship within the body of Christ, that is what God is looking for. We are all brothers and sisters, no matter where we are in, the par- in any part of the world. I've got three brothers. They live in Seattle. At any given time, I can hang out with them. Why? Because they're family. In spite of any flaws that I may have, you know, they still want to hang out with me. In spite of anything that goes on, we are still brothers. And that has to be the core foundation for us as the called out ones. It doesn't matter what we're going through. It doesn't matter what we look like, what we talk like. The bottom line is we're family and we're sticking through it. Amen? Amen. I appreciate that clapping. So what is then, we've got, I'm just going to give you four hallmarks of the simple church. I, like I said, I could give you a lot. And I'm, I'm, Skipping over the largest one, Jesus obviously is the hallmark of the, new, of the simple church, right? So let's, we're all agreed on that one. Jesus is it, okay? We can't have this without Jesus. So just put that in the back of your mind. Jesus is the simple church, okay? The first thing we look at is, is prayer. Prayer is the first hallmark of the simple church. They got together, and you see Acts chapter 2. It says they all gathered together in one place, and the whole place was shaken, not just spiritually speaking. This is the one time you can literally say literally and it be true. Literally, the place was shaken. Not metaphorically, the place was shaken. Literally, the place that they were at was shaken because of the prayers that they were praying. The fact that we are here today is a result of those prayers, of the result of them being in the upper room. Think about that for a second. When they got together and they prayed, they were so concentrated and so focused, the Holy Spirit came down upon them and the place where they were sitting was shaken. I mean, just imagine that. We think and we read it now and it seems like a cool story, like, oh, wouldn't that be so cool? But the building started shaking and you're just going, what is going on? You look over and all of a sudden there's a flame on top of your buddy's head. You know, <sighs> cloven tongues like a flame of fire. You know what I mean? And then you look over and this guy's got a flame and do I have one? I can't, you know, and all of a sudden, everybody starts speaking a different language. And everyone, all, then you stumble out of the building because you're, you know, kind of rocking and, you know, let's get out of here. We don't know what's going on. The wind is blowing. The Holy Spirit's rushing like a mighty wind. And you step out of the building, and everybody just starts shouting in all these different languages. And there's a, somehow, for some reason, there's a big crowd hanging out next to the upper room, and they all hear you. And the guy's like, this guy's speaking Arab. This guy's speaking Cretan. This guy's speaking Greek. And they're just like, and then Peter gets up and says, look, hey, we're not drunk, as you suppose, you know, and rightfully so. Everybody comes stumbling out of the building, you know, speaking in foreign languages to fire on top of their heads, you know, what do you guys got in there? He says, no, we're not drunk, as you suppose. We don't have anything special in there. But this is what was prophesied in Joel chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit was going to come on everybody. But that only happens through prayer. That doesn't happen just because you, you stumbled into that room. You got in that room, and you said, man, I'm going to commit to whatever is going on up in here. Yeah. Corinthians says that over 500 people saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. Jesus told at least 500 people that, he was, that they should go to the upper room. Only 120 were up there. That's not including all the thousands that he touched before, fed them, all that kind of stuff. We're just talking just post-resurrection only 120 just slipped up there. But that 120 literally turned the world upside down. Actually, metaphorically turned the world upside down. <laughs> but let me ask you this. What, what prayers are you praying that are going to endure? That, you know, if the Lord should tarry a 
1,000 years from now, 550 years from now, what are those prayers going to look like? Are those prayers going to endure or are they only 30 days long? You know, like, Lord, I got I to gotta pay my bills, which those are valid prayers. Don't get me wrong. But what prayers are you moving into that are going to affect the rest of history? That's going to change the course of America. That's going to change the course of your family, the ones who aren't saved. Are your prayers being given over to them, for them, to be saved and to be discipled and to be you know, brought into the kingdom? Or is it just like, man, I hope that guy stays away from me during the holidays, please, Lord. You know, or is it just blessing the food? You know, good God, good food, good God, let's eat. Something like that. What, what are your prayers like? If, if you are not living a sustainable prayer life, which we define as a lifelong lifestyle, if you're not praying every day, I'm not saying praying for an hour every day. I'm not saying praying for 30 minutes. I'm saying what can you do How in 2014? How can you pray every day? What length of time could you commit to and commit to 360, 359 days the rest of the year to be able to pray like that every single day? If you can commit to an hour, hey, praise God, you are going to rule, literally, spiritually. You will rule over other people. But if you can't commit to an hour, what can you commit to? Can it be five minutes? Can you roll out of bed five minutes before you shower and just get on your knees and say, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, for five minutes? What, I mean, that's, you know, and eventually, I guarantee you, if you did that for a month of just, oh God, oh God, oh God, you'd probably be able to have, to have something to say by 30 days later because you'd realize, okay, God's meeting my needs because he's hearing my prayers. I'm trusting in him. Now I can begin to move into praying for somebody else. Oh Lord, help my wife, help my wife, you know. Pray that for 30 days. And then for my children for 30, you know. You will eventually, if you move in, if you live in a sustainable lifestyle, you'll move into that generous lifestyle where your prayers really begin to move into, I'm praying for laborers. I'm praying for God's kingdom to come. I'm praying for his will to be done on earth just as it is in heaven. It's not about us. It's about Jesus, and it's about us moving into that realm of life where we begin to get on his will and pray his mind, and that's when things really begin to change. But if you're over there praying for a new BMW, well, it may happen, but that BMW is only going to last 50 years. But if you begin to call in the harvest and call in the laborers, God, send laborers to Canvas Church. God, make me a better laborer in Canvas Church. Lord, give me those prayers. So you got to be praying alone. But guess what? Every Sunday morning, they've got corporate prayer. All throughout this next 21 days at the church offices, corporate prayer. It's not enough. The Bible is very clear. It's not just enough to pray by yourself. It's extremely important. That's the beginning. That's the basis of your relationship with God is that prayer time, that conversation with him daily. But we got to move into that corporate prayer where two or three are gathered together and that's when things really begin to happen. Call the elders forward. Lay hands on the sick, praying for people, praying with other people. When you begin to get into corporate prayer, that's when the things really begin to shake. Things begin to come loose and unburdened off your life. Why? Because you're gathered together and the thrust of those prayers, it's it's. It's irresistible to God to hear that when people get together and they're petitioning and they're bombarding heaven, just saying, Lord, we want to hear, God, God, we need this, we need laborers. Lord, send this. God just loves it. He loves to hear the prayers of his people gather together. But it's not just enough to pray alone. It's not just enough to pray together. God also wants you to pray for people. This is what got the, the apostles in a lot of trouble all the time. 
It's like they would pray for somebody and they'd be healed and then everybody would get mad at them. You know, what are you doing praying for this guy to be healed? And it's like, we just were doing it, you know, that's what God told us. They didn't have to spit everywhere. Well, we gotta be praying for people. We gotta be praying with people. You know, sometimes I ride the bus to go work out and uh, sometimes there's someone there who just likes the chat. And uh, a lot of times they're not, you know, they're not totally there. They're just riding the bus for a warm seat. And, uh, but those guys, they love the chat. They just want to talk, 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 talk. And you know, I usually do, depending on my spirituality that day, I'll just turn and say, do you want to pray with me right now? And it's like instantaneously, they just stop talking. <laughs> and I'm not saying that to be, you know, rude or derogatory or that I don't want to talk to somebody, but I really genuinely, hey, how can I pray for you? Uh, uh, no, I don't need any prayer. You know, you work with somebody who's just cussing up a blue streak all day long. Hey, Tom, you want to pray right now? I don't, I don't want, leave me alone. You know? Somebody at work is going through a hard time. Hey, let me pray with you. Let me pray for you. I know you, I, I probably have gone through rough times and, and I don't know what you're going through, but I know that if we just pray together, God, God will hear our prayers and something will change. Do you want to just pray? It, and it's just that simple. Can I, can I pray with you? Just say that. Say, can I pray with you? Say it all out loud, not in your brain. <laughs> Somebody like, I said it. No, I want, you got to get familiar with saying it because turn to your neighbor now and say, can I pray with you? It, it seems awkward, doesn't it? Especially if you don't know that person, you know what I mean? <laughs> he said, told me to say, can I pray with you? But if you don't do it in here in the church where we're all brothers and sisters, what makes you think you're going to go out into, the, into your workplace and find somebody you don't know who's, you know, living like the devil, and then you say, can I pray with you? No, you're going to be like, do you want something? No. <laughs> I said, can I pray with you in my mind? Why didn't you want to pray with me? You're like the guys at the basketball hoops at the pier. You know, the, the rim is smaller. They don't play basketball at all throughout the week, but they come and they spend $17 on three basketballs and think they're going to make one of them. And they shoot like this. Like, bro, you are out of your mind. I would never pay that much money to shoot a basketball hoop. Even if I was Michael Jordan, they're paying me to shoot. But they're going to go to the pier and you think, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't play basketball all week long, but today I'm going to make this on this rigged hoop. No, you're wrong. That's why you got to get in here where it is rigged, where we're all brothers and sisters. We're all friends. We can all, hey, can I pray with you? Oh, that was so easy. Oh, yeah, I got to shake it off. That was weird and awkward. Now you get out Monday morning and somebody really does have an issue and you say, hey, can I pray with you? And it's not that hard. That's why you got to come to corporate prayer because you, you begin to pr- learn how to pray out loud, pray with somebody, pray for somebody, and it becomes less awkward over time. That's just one of the many benefits of, of corporate prayer. The best thing about prayer, though, is when you pray, you become bold. If you, if you notice in those passages, verse 29 says this, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. And the place, uh, and when they had prayed, the place where they were shaken together was this, where they assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. You can't really be a simple church without boldness. You have to be bold. And I think that's one of the things about uh, Christianity in America that we're certainly lacking because we don't want to, we get into this realm of what I call the ditch of eggshells. 
where it's just, you know, you're kind of tiptoeing around. This is how they used to do it in the old cartoons. They would tiptoe like this, and that's the way Christians look. Like, hey, I don't want to offend you. Really, you don't want to offend them, because January 1st at the Rose Bowl Parade, they're having a big old gay marriage on the, on the floats. They're not worrying about offending anybody there. I guarantee you, if you were to get up there and say, I would like to marry my wife or my uh, woman and, and do it on the parade, they'd laugh at you. Why would you want to do that? Why would we do that? That's so stupid. Boldness. Now, the opposite ditch of eggshells is abrasion. That's just as bad as not saying anything is being abrasive. And abrasion to me is casting your pearls before the swine, which is ultimately saying you're giving somebody a level of truth that they're not willing or ready to handle. So you can't go in there talking about revelation. This is what a lot of people do. They'll put on the sandwich board, the end is near, you're going to hell. That People aren't ready to handle that level of abrasion. You have no relationship, and you're going to tell them that they're entirely wrong. Everything they, that they know in their world is stupid and dumb, and they're lame, and they're going to hell. That doesn't really fly with a lot of people for some reason. I don't, you know. Hey, good to meet you. You're going straight to hell, you jerk. Do you want to come to church on Sunday? I go to Canvas. What was the name of that church again? <laughs> but we, we, go, we can go from ditch to ditch. Oh, you're right. I'm not going to be on eggshells. I'm going to go straight into Abrasionville and just punch people in the face with the gospel. That, that doesn't work either. You can't go from ditch to ditch. You've got to get right up in the middle, which is the highway of holiness, which is being like Jesus. You have to have boldness, but you've got to have, this is where prayer comes into this. If you're not praying, you're not going to have any discernment. You have to know where a person is at. You've got to know that. And you say, well, that's so hard. Can I have three principles of how to know where somebody's at? Yeah, pray, pray, pray. There you go. You've got to be like Jesus. You've got to be in tune. If you look at the life of Jesus, every person he encountered, he knew exactly how to respond, how to ask them questions. He knew when to whip somebody, literally with a whip. He had to make a whip at one point. It says that he spent the time to whip. He make a whip. I'm going to make a whip here, and then I'm going to start whipping these people in the temple. I, guys, you, who has some whip material around here? Uh, okay. What are you doing, Jesus? I'm making a whip. You know what I mean? He's taking his time. This is going to be a nice one. He's the master of the world, so it's perfect. It's perfect whip. And then he go, opens the door to the temple. My house shall not be called a den of thieves. You know what I mean? It's a house of prayer. And then he starts whipping people. And here's the best part. It was perfect. There was no sin involved in that whatsoever. He did exactly the perfect will of God, which is mind-boggling. If I carried a whip around, it would not be perfect. You know, out of my way. That's my seat on the bus. Do not drive and walk in front of me. A lot of examples where I could get into sin with a whip. But Jesus knew exactly what the situation called for, and he whipped some people. And then other places, he walks up to the well, chills, it's noon, it's hot. Here comes a Samaritan woman, says, look, hey, can you give me some water? What, you're asking me for water? Look, if you knew who was asking you for water, you would have asked me for water. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, we all read that and be like, yeah, Jesus just told her what's up, you know what I mean? She's just like, what did you say? don't have any water. You don't have a pail here. I'm the well of Jacob. Whoa. 
but he had discernment, and he knew exactly what he was going to say and how he was going to say it and how he could reach that woman's heart. And, of course, she gets saved, and what does she do? She goes straight into her town with the same boldness that he had with her, and she brought the whole town to see Jesus. Boldness has to be coupled with discernment. Otherwise, you're going to fall into one of those two ditches. You've got to get out of those ditches. It doesn't matter how honest or your personality you are. All personalities bow to Jesus' personality. You see that? It's not like, uh, you know, if you took the disc test or a type A or a type A personality was just like Jesus. No, no, no. Jesus is the perfect personality. And if it's simple church, I'm just trying to be like Jesus, so I'm just trying to take on his personality. Jesus was an extroverted. He was an introverted. He was the perfect blend. He knew exactly who to be to everybody who came across. And you say, I, I can't be Jesus. No, but you can be like Jesus because the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now dwells inside of you and empowers you to live a life like Jesus. Which leads us to our next point, which is obedience. Now, obedience seems like, you know, this is what every Christian should be doing. We should just be living an obedient lifestyle. I'm just being like Jesus, but Jesus had sinless perfection. We don't have that. We have a tested imperfection. Jesus had sinless perfection, which means that in thought, in word, in deed, he was exactly perfect. There was total submission to the will of the Father. Everything he did, he says, look, I go to the Father. Whatever I see the Father doing in heaven, that's what I'm doing here on earth. He wrestled with it in the Garden of uh, Gethsemane. He said, Lord, nevertheless, I want to do my thing. I want to go my way. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And that prayer should be one of our prayers every single day. I, I want to do my own thing today. I, I want to I just go about my day. But obedience should override that and say, Lord, nevertheless, not, not my will, God, but your will be done. I, I, w- I want your will to be done. I don't want the things that I do in my life. I want their, your will to be done. And it's total obedience to, to being like Jesus. Not, not, just, not even doing what you, your own little thing just a little bit. It's total obedience to God. Just surrendering your life and saying, I want to be like Jesus. I want when I come, and this is, this is, this is how this ties into the church, because I know I'm talking a lot about this in a personal thing, but who is the church? Say, I am. I am, right? So if you are being these things, when we gather together as the, the corporate body of Christ, then we, the church, will embody all of these things. That's how these things tie into each other. Being always precedes doing. You cannot do like Jesus if you cannot be like Jesus. I want to do it, Jesus. I want to raise people from the dead. Well, you've got to be like Jesus first. You can't be killing people and then raising them from the dead with your words, physically killing them either, you know, because it says do not kill. Not even in your mind, you can't kill somebody. Hating somebody is killing them. Jesus says, look, you heard it said, don't kill. But I say if you hated somebody in your heart, you might as well have murdered them. Ouch. Hate a lot of jaywalkers. (laughs) I love you now. It's that obedience, though. That obedience comes down to what am I going to do? When I wake up in the morning, if we're getting back to simplicity, if we're getting back to simple, what am I going to do when I wake up? Well, I, I, I have a free will. I can, you can choose whatever you want to do. Sure you can. That's the beauty of the free will. 
but now that your will is given over to Jesus, my desire is to do the will of God. It's in the, in the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's King James. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. God, I, I see your will for my life in heaven, and, and that's what I want here on earth. I want your will to come down, and I want to walk in that will today because God's perfect will is exactly what you want. Sometimes we don't know what we want. We have an idea because the world forces things that we want. We want a new iPad. We want a new car. We want a new house. We want a swimming pool. We want a whatever. We want all these things, but God's like, you really don't need any of that to exist on planet Earth. What you really need is Jesus. You need his perfect will. And that's what obedience does. It aligns us back to the perfect will of God and says, that, that's what I'm going for. The last point after obedience, it leads to this, suffering. Now, don't tune out because <laughs> I said suffering. All the other ones are really fun until that last one, buddy. Uh, nobody wants to suffer. Exactly, nobody wants to suffer, right? And we all suffer at, at various points and times and we all have different levels of suffering, you know, traffic. So the traffic in San Diego is less than that in LA. So I'm a greater sufferer than you. <laughs> you had to wait in line extra long at Starbucks this morning and then they ran out of peppermint, you know, squirt. And uh, <laughs> I'm suffering, you know what I mean? You're waiting for your phone to upload, you know, to download new software, suffering. You know, the first world problems hashtag, that's one of my favorite ones. That, that's suffering now for all of us. You know, this is what, this is what life is. We're, we're, we're so connected and, and interconnected that this is what suffering is. My phone is not uploading fast enough. I'm trying to play, you know, Scrabble with friends, and I'm waiting for their turn. <sighs> How long? That, that's our, that's our, the American version of suffering to some degree for a significant, I mean, really, if you just living, just by living in America, you are in the top 5% of the world's richest people. Now, you may not feel like that, but you are. Most people live on like $100 a decade. That's not a statistic, so don't quote me on that. I th you said this, and it was all wrong, pal. Discredit. I'm exaggerating, but you get the point. Most of the world lives on nothing a day, forever, the whole of their life. And a lot of them are really, really happy because they have Jesus. You know, in China right now, uh, the persecuted church there, they cannot gather as a real church. They have, church, have government-sanctioned churches where people can get together and worship, but it's just music, and it's a controlled message that cannot speak out against anything or say the wrong things according to the Chinese government. So you've got this sham church that's set up, but then you've got this real church where people are gathering together in rooms with padded walls and they're mouthing the lyrics. They're not vocally singing them because if they sing too loud, the, the police will come in and arrest them all and torture them and throw them in prison. So they're mouthing worship and tears are streaming down their face. Meanwhile, we got a whole band up here and they're ripping and rocking and it's in HD and there's lights going and you're just like this. I don't like this song. Meanwhile, in China, a lot of flowing out this morning. I apologize for that. Meanwhile, in China, they're mouthing the lyrics. Meanwhile, in China, they're sneaking out in the middle of the night, cutting holes in 
two feet thick ice, dipping people in to be baptized in the middle of the night because they don't want to be arrested. What temperature is that baptismal again? 75? That's cold. They give you the t-shirt, they give you the shorts, the towel, the canvas towel, the canvas toothbrush. Is this all I get? But this is all you get? Okay, fine, new life. How about that? Oh. That, that's the, the level of suffering that we go through. I mean, we're, we're suffering because it's, you know, there's no air conditioning or heating in here. Oh, well. For 2,000 years, they didn't have any of that. And they seem to got by okay. Our level of suffering is, is not a whole lot, but it's about to get greater. I can guarantee you that. That's not my prophecy. That's the Bible's prophecy. Things are going to get worse. Things are going to get harder. But that's where the Bible over and over again, the Apostle Paul, Jesus, he who endures to the end will be saved. You have to have the ability to endure suffering. Why? Because this light affliction that we're feeling right now is nothing compared to that far greater glory. Paul's writing, he's saying it from prison. He's, you know, just got beaten and whipped. He's like, listen, this light affliction that I've just bore for the church, I've just bared on my back, literally on my back through stripes, this light affliction that's all over me, it's nothing compared to that far greater glory. He's looking and he's seeing that reward and just saying, people saved, heaven, the presence of Jesus, lives healed, no tears, no weeping, streets are paved with gold. And he, and he just, he's seeing that there's something greater, that through the suffering that we're going through, through the things that are hard in life, and, and I understand that things are hard. You may be having a, a time, a financial hard time, or you may be having a physical hard time, but whatever it is, the suffering that you're going through, it's proving and it's shaping and it's making you stronger so that you will endure to the end, so that you can be saved. So what if they didn't have heating in the building? You can endure that for 45 minutes or less. You can endure it. You can get through it. It's going to be all right. You're going to make it. Jesus looked through the suffering that he went through and saw on the other side of that suffering, he saw you. And he says, I'm going for that prize. Think about it. If he would have got, you know, most of us would have got to the whipping part and would have said, you know, time out. I don't really like these people. There's a lot of them I don't even know because they're 2,000 years in the future. One whip ought to be fine. It's one strike. Ah, okay, nope, done. I'm out of here. Peter, you're up. Come up behind the trash can. Peter, we see you. Cusser, get up here. Give him the rest of my whips. Every stripe that was laid on Jesus' back ripped it open. They took that crown of thorns, two and a half, three inch long thorns, pierced right into his head. Said his head began to swell up. When they brought him out before Pilate, he said, we don't even know if this is a man. Here's here's this man. This is who you want? This is your savior? Ripped and beaten and bloodied. Then he said, carry your cross. He took that cross, which was 
two times the size of him, and he carried it up through one of the busiest streets in all of Jerusalem as everyone's thronging and pushing and mocking and spitting and slapping. This is the Savior of the world. And they stretched out his arms, put the nails into his hands, put the nails into his feet, and then they hung an innocent man. Why did he suffer? So that you wouldn't have to live a life in eternity of suffering. He endured the pain, the shame, the rejection, even by God the Father for a time. He endured all of that so that you could step out of suffering, out of rejection, into acceptance, and into an eternity in heaven with the Father. Thank you for joining us today. For more information, please visit our website at www.canvaschurchsd.com.